0: Hello, everybody. It's your wet-banded bruiser, Holden McNeely.
1: And it's me, your filthy animal wizard, Jake. And this week, we're talking about what is actually, on paper, statistically, <laughs> the greatest Christmas movie ever made.
0: <laughs> I cannot wait. All right, I guess I can wait, uh, or I don't have to wait, because we're here. I get to finally talk about this movie. I love Home Alone. Can we just start with that? Let's start with the personal for a little bit. I'm going to be talking about personal shit all throughout this uh, episode, though, because I remember vividly seeing this movie for the first time um, with, like, my family in the theater. I remember immediately connecting to Kevin McAllister. I remember and, – and also, like, I, I think at the exact same time I was, like, super into Calvin and Hobbes. Mm-hmm. And here is, again, this, like, blonde, wisecracking, rebellious kid that was, sort of had similar ties in certain ways – um, and, and, you know, just the whole format of it was just so perfect for children. I think everything, it had so, all these things that were great for adults. This kind of some dirty moments, a really fun, connective, like, family holiday bullshit like that you also get with like Christmas Vacation. Christmas um, Story. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, I should say. Christmas Story. Exactly, right? Like, we're, oh, we all deal with this. But like the tricks and traps at the end, having it be like, oh man, you know basically the premise is that like these guys are gonna try to come in and this kid is going to like mousetrap them to death. But but like the, the build up to that and then having it go down in the most like entertaining, over the top like in terms of physical comedy, too, just the notch was turned up us in a certain way on this movie. Like, the falls were just fallier. The, the thumps were thumpier. Everything just, like, popped so well. And we'll get into why uh, in a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, there's... You said a ton of stuff that yeah, I agree with you completely. And
0: we'll revisit a few of the points I've said in more detail. But that's kind of my overview. Like holy shit, I loved this movie when I was a kid, and um, am so excited to to nerd out about it today. This, essentially, uh,
1: this week uh, rewatching the movie, going over interviews, like kind of revisiting the team and the actors that put this together, really sent me in like a roller coaster highs and lows because. Mm. On the one hand, like, this movie is solid. This is just a perfectly constructed, like, just knock out of the park on, like, just on every level, like, from the script to the score to the cinematography, everyone nailed what they were supposed to nail. And the result is something that is truly timeless. And it was, again... Uh, It's always, when you grow up, you're like, you can finally see the craft of filmmaking. Yeah. And and you kind of, you kind of like take a step back when you, like when we watched Jurassic Park and we were like, oh, this is really that good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And on the other hand, it's like a really great movie and there's really nothing to complain about when it comes to the movie and it's free of all. On the other
1: hand, this sent me (laughs) on a fucking tailspin because Kevin McAllister and more importantly, Macaulay Culkin was the avatar of like all childhood fantasy Mm. He was friends with Michael Jackson. He had every video game. He was
0: a celebrity. He got to hang out with Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live. How cool is that, that he got to be really close friends, a child, with grown adult Michael Jackson? He had to testify in court that he
1: was never We will
0: talk about that Um, as well.
1: Uh, But but then,
0: like, seeing, like, again. uh, My favorite story, by the way, with the Michael Jackson thing, really quick, was it was like, Michael Jackson just showed up one day in a white van with no windows (laughs) on it and completely unmarked and hung out with us all day. I'm like, Michael Jackson, can you just get a car that's not a fucking white van with no windows, please?
1: Uh, it's amazing how the, uh, oh God, I, I, fuck it, I'll just say, it. it's like, the, the the nice way of looking at it is like, this kid was catapulted to a level of movie stardom that is usually reserved for people like Tom Cruise before he was even, like when he was 10 years old, Yeah, I and think that's was, insane, and the only other person hmm. who could possibly understand what it's like to have your childhood robbed by yes. international celebrity is Michael Jackson, and for on sure. that level, because of all the security and because of all the weirdness, like... In Neverland Ranch, it was the only time that, like, uh, Macaulay Culkin
0: could actually feel privacy. That's I lovely. Be- I That's bet. That's nice. And I uh, bet they talked about their dads a lot. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Ooh, weird. Weird connection they also had. Uh, the
0: nightmare fathers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> on the other hand, the psychopathy of just like Michael Jackson and his perpetual, like, yearning for youth and whiteness.
0: Yeah. Is so
1: embodied in Macaulay Culkin that, like, it could not have been kosher. Yeah. Um, But, you know, there's Macaulay Culkin's been, you know, he lives in New York. He does shit all the time. He's been around forever and there's tons of interviews. He was on Joe Rogan. He was on The Ellen Show. And now he's a husk. He is an empty vessel. Uh, There is uh, everything he talks about. Like he he just dicks around the world, like just floating on his millions of dollars. And uh, he even said, like. This is this is this is amazing. In an interview with Ellen, this is like adult ass pushing 40 Macaulay Culkin public. Like he had nothing to publish yeah. but to put to plug besides I his saw podcast. The, I saw
0: the same interview. Yeah.
1: And uh, she was like talking about uh, his time in high school because he got to go to a like performing arts high school. And uh, she was like, so did the kids treat you differently? And like without like blinking, Macaulay Culkin just very casually just goes. Well, everyone treats me differently. Everyone's always treated me differently. And that shook me to my core.
0: I was reading um, an interview with Mila Kunis, who dated him for a little while. And um, she was talking about how, and she's a big star. And she was like, people would literally scream when they saw him. I've never seen anything like it. It is a completely on a different level in terms of how people treat a star. Like, people would actually just stop and start screaming as they saw, with their hands on their cheeks. probably (laughs) But, you know,
1: side note, uh, aftershave, not relatable. I don't know anyone who uses the stuff. It seems weird.
0: (laughs) I just used it earlier. What do you mean? What do you you just smell good? Yeah, it's cologne and it feels good. Yeah, but it's just aftershave. You're wrong, Jake. Do you use like you use a non-alcoholic? And you're going to beg Mary to edit this out. But Mary, keep it in because this is you have a full beard. Why would you know about aftershave?
1: Because I have to get the neck meat clean. I imagine you as a little... I use... And first of all, I use a balm. I use an aftershave
0: balm. I don't want to talk about cleaning your neck meat, but I did just have a funny image of you um, uh, being delivered as a baby with a full beard and glasses. Uh, <laughs> maybe. So, I definitely had the hat. So uh, That I got in the womb. So, yeah. And and also, this movie gives us a great excuse to talk about John Hughes and Chris Columbus, who is like... Um, I forget. Like, I ne- I never thought of it as who wrote and directed what in terms of my childhood films. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, like, oh, they were, like, all done by John Hughes, Chris Columbus, and, like, Spielberg and George Lucas. Like, you know what I mean? Like everything all- from the Goonies. Yeah, to- the Goonies. Um, just the fact that John Hughes fucking wrote National Lampoon's Vacation, Bueller, and Christmas Vacation. Yeah. Like more of his writing surprised me. But and we're, we're let's let's get into let's get into it now. Um, okay. because we're gonna start this little spaceship journey with uh, John Hughes, Chris Columbus, and then talk about how we're
1: pushing this toboggan down the living room steps.
0: That's right. That's right. Um, so anyways, John Hughes and, and by the way, I'm making this brief for a reason people because I, I definitely plan to, um, uh, do a full episode on John Hughes at some point. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, uh, why I'm keeping it brief. Also side, side, side note, John Hughes has come into play in my life in a big way lately because right now I'm back into doing jigsaw puzzles for some reason. And my big thing is watching old, Beloved films, while I work on the jigsaw puzzle, and so so John Hughes is just slamming out the hits. I'm glad right you're now, getting a household. head start
1: on your retirement at age 70. Yes.
0: Well, this is the sad truth about me is that I was getting my start back when I was a little kid. I would listen to Stephen King book on tape and uh, put puzzles together alone in my room for many, many hours of my childhood. This explains so much. Oh, yeah, bro. And it was mostly Stephen King books on tape, by the way. (laughs) Like, I'm no lie. There was some Crichton in there. But for the most part, I would get those, like, giant... store uh like those giant short story uh book on tapes in my in my head you're
1: also wearing superman pajamas just listening to the pelican brief
0: (laughs) sure yeah pelican brief for sure (laughs) definitely some uh john grisham in the rotation the client was probably the first it was either the client or jurassic park that was the first adult book i ever read
1: probably the one with dinosaurs i think it was in
0: fifth grade i read i read those i like had it was hard
1: Every night, my parents would beat me to sleep with a copy of Sphere. <laughs> so I know it. I know oh, mine like- was
0: Andromeda Strain. Um,. <laughs> So anyways, John Hughes, born in Lansing, Michigan in 1950. He said, I grew up in a neighborhood that was mostly girls and old people. There weren't any boys my age, so I spent a lot of time by myself imagining things. But uh, luckily for him, he did end up uh, moving with his family to a suburb of Chicago called Northbrook in 1963 and attended a high school named Glenbrook, North high school and that was the inspiration for so many of his films the goings-on at that specific high school um he ends up going to the University of Arizona but he drops out and during this time I don't know how he got this gig um I'm excited to dig deeper to find out he was selling jokes to people like Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers for side money he was always you know a comedy writer at heart and he, You don't think about that as much. Like All of his movies are pretty much comedies, but you think about them more as being these like emotional teen movies, I feel like, when you associate with John Hughes. But it's like, no, he was writing comedy from the very, very beginning of his career and writing it really well, as we'll see when he gets a job as an ad copywriter in Chicago in 1970, of course, because they all do. Um, So if you're not an ad copywriter and you want to be a screenplay writer – then um, you need to go ahead and get that job first. No, no, no,
1: no, no. You can be a screenwriter without being an ad exec first. Uh, you won't be successful because no. you won't have an innate understanding of the hopes and dreams and unconscious desires of the American people. <laughs> and so, because it, if there's one thing that a lot of John Hughes movies does is hits a lot of unconscious desires, a lot yes, of like, yes, honestly, the fact that he nailed. Like, the id and, like, true self-image of a narcissistic American child yeah. of the early 90s is a testament to how finely honed his instincts were.
0: The other thing with it, too, though, is that he didn't pull punches in certain ways that other children story writers do. For Great point. Great example. The playboy in Home Alone. Mm-hmm. It's like... It's, it's little details like that that he includes in all of his movies, even the kids getting high at, in Breakfast Club. You know what I mean? Of uh, being like, okay, I know parents, you don't want to think about this kind of stuff, but your little kid's going to find his older brother's Playboy, and the kids are going to smoke weed during detention. And like, he was able to get in these kind of adultish sort of things that. Made all of these children characters so much more believable.
1: All the nudie pages were taped together so that ca- so that uh, Macaulay Culkin could not see them during tape.
0: That is amazing. Filmed I did not, right not have that. I did <laughs> not have that. Uh, that fact. <laughs> factoid in here but anyways um, back to him as a copyright in Chicago 1970 he starts working with Philip Morris uh, the cigarette dealer Uh, he's doing ad copy for them especially uh, their Virginia Slims cigarettes come a long way baby I know right and that took him to New York City which led him over to the offices of National Lampoon Magazine he must have been a fan he just started just popping by seeing if he could get work and he gets his first big start with a story that he wrote that I really need to go and read it's called Vacation 58 and this would become eventually the screenplay for National Lampoon's Vacation so it's a prose story I have to read this like it's it must be great, right? I mean, it spawned the whole thing. He ends up um, writing the screenplay for National Lampoon's Vacation. That ends up being kind of his first big like hit in the movie industry. He did write a screenplay before that for a film I would actually like to see just for some late-night giggles called Class Reunion, um, which is kind of like a horror story a little bit it was like the crazy kid from the high school um he he's like slowly picking people off at the class reunion it's like a black comedy and then the the jock and the nerd and the the popular girl they all have to like try to figure out like who who the killer is or or try to find him or whatever you know so anyways but that movie bombed hard uh then he writes vacation gets him on a successful track and then he gets another follow-up big hit with mr mom which i don't know if i've seen mr mom um but his de- directorial debut was of course 16 candles and then the hits just keep coming on his with his just amazing takes on high school life with the breakfast club pretty and pink weird science ferris bueller's day off and some kind of wonderful some kind of wonderful i'd also like to see i haven't seen it i also haven't seen i haven't seen some brad pack movies i'd like to go back and see now like saint elmo's fire um just some that like i were not really for me yeah. probably you know what i mean but now i'm curious Um, and I love the nostalgia and I do love these takes on teenagers and I do like enjoy that now as an adult, even though I couldn't be as into it as a child. And then he ends up kind of turning away from the teen thing. He's feeling a little pigeonholed, and that's in the late 80s when he starts doing uh, stuff like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and Uncle Buck, which has kids and it, has teens in it, but it's more centered around the Uncle Buck character and even more like little, little kids. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, where he runs into, um, he directs uh, Macaulay Culkin, which we'll get into in just a little bit. But let's now take a little chit-chat over... To uh, Chris Columbus. The director? The director of this film. So John Hughes, by the way, oh, by the way, I should say, John Hughes uh, wrote Home Alone. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I hope we said that. I didn't. I don't know if I put that together in my head. I think I knew it kind of, but I don't think I r- actually realized who like was behind Home Alone. No, I. When you say
1: Home Alone, I think Chris Columbus.
0: Yeah, but even that, I didn't even think. I didn't the director
1: th- of Pixels.
0: Now beloved I beloved
1: movie Pixels.
0: Now, if I like a movie, I go on IMDb and I look up the direct. Even if I hate the movie, I'll usually fucking just look up at least basically what else they've done. Mm. But back in the day, I never did that kind of stuff. I mean, I just watched movies, and I didn't even realize – what did we do recently where I was like, I didn't even realize I was the same director, but it makes sense because they all feel the same. You know what I mean? Like all the movies. I don't know what it was. But um, anywho, uh, Christopher Columbus was like that too for me. I had no idea he directed – he wrote Gremlins – and The Goonies, um, and directed Adventures in Babysitting. Like, I had no idea that, of course, that makes so much sense that he wrote The Goonies. Um, if you just compare the, the, the way the kids are in those two movies, you know. How dumb and Italian the the
1: criminals are.
0: (laughs) And how stupid and Italian the criminals are. So he's raised in Ohio, and then he went to...
1: Technically, Marv is Jewish, because he says Happy Hanukkah in the second one. So it's really about the pure blonde (laughs) child protecting his, uh... Nouveau Riche family from the immigrant.
0: And that is also why. We're come
1: to take away all that they have earned.
0: And that is also why, uh, for our Patreon bonus content, we're going to be doing an episode called Is the Home Alone franchise anti Semitic? Yes, it's fine. <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> no, but we, I will say this. This episode, we are focusing on just the first movie, and we do plan to do a uh, bonus Patreon content episode about uh the sequel and the bad video games and i really want to talk about that game boy game dude because i definitely oh, put some time I played into that the, game boy the
1: game the bethesda softworks classic on <laughs> nes many times
0: <laughs> and uh you know uh, home alone three and four even though i haven't even seen them but we'll talk about them um mm. Nah, dude. No, let's not. Uh, but but uh, I digress. Let's get back over to Chris Columbus. Raised in Ohio, then he goes to uh, NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. He's uh, His classmates at Tisch included uh, writer-director Charlie Kaufman and Alec Baldwin. He gets an agent using a 20-page screenplay that he wrote during his school days, and that's what leads him to Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment, and that's what leads to him writing such hits as Gremlins and the Goonies. Um, also, Gremlins just barely uh lost out to home alone for mm-hmm. what this week's episode was gonna be uh but i i do want to do a gremlins episode eventually because i fucking love gremlins we're gonna
1: do a gremlins episode because to this day it's still the most terrifying monsters in my memory <laughs> i was actively afraid that the the smart gremlin from gremlins 2 That's was amazing. gonna jump out of my closet yeah
0: the one with the mohawk no, 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 the smart one. Oh, okay. Oh, the talky one. I, oh, right, 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 right. St- fuck Stripe. Stripe's bullshit. Um, so, of course, these are all stories about kids becoming empowered, having to fight back against some evil force of nature that's coming after them, right? And you, you as a kid, being like so excited to cheer these kids on, you know? I mean... I I also want to do an episode on the Goonies eventually. I love the Goonies, like very, 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 very much. Um I
1: think I've watched it since I was a kid.
0: Really? Yeah, I do. Oh, I love it. Oh, you should so watch it. I, I some people I remember fun- being weirded
1: out by Lumpy Face? yeah and, uh, um, slug? Yeah, yeah. um, sloth. um sl- yeah sloth weirded out by sloth and uh that the asian kid had fun inventions
0: oh but the and the 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 chubby ch- was oh chubby. the
1: truffle shuffle i yeah. also remember the truffle the shuffle. Tr- but
0: remember the interrogation when he's like screaming about all the things he's done <laughs> and crying and they're all like a dumb bad kid shit that I d- has nothing I don't, to do. I don't remember oh it's so good dude well anyways back to Chris Columbus and Home Alone. He makes his directorial debut, as I said, with Adventures in Babysitting, and his agent at the time was Jack Rapke, who was also John Hughes' agent, and that is how they end up meeting up. Here is essentially, this quote essentially defines how Home Alone gets going, Mm -hmm. and it involves Chevy Chase, and it's very funny. Yeah. So another thing you need to know is, John Hughes wrote... Did, he wrote National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, I believe. I hope so. I believe. Um, and, and so he gets Christopher Columbus, Chris Columbus, rather, uh, a job um, directing it. He, uh, Columbus says... In 1989, I directed Heartbreak Hotel, and it was a disaster. It opened on a Friday, and by Wednesday, it was only playing at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Around that time, John Hughes sent me the script for Christmas Vacation. I love Christmas, so to do a Christmas comedy had been a dream. I went out to dinner with Chevy Chase. To be completely honest, Chevy treated me like dirt, but I stuck it out and even went as far as to shoot Second Unit. Um, some of my shots of downtown Chicago were still in the movie. Second units, like establishing B-roll. shots, B roll bullshit. Yeah. Um, Then I had another meeting with Chevy and it was worse. I called John and said there's no way I can do this movie. I know I need to work, but I can't do it with this guy. John was very understanding. (laughs) I'm sure he was, Chris. About two weeks later, I'm I'm going off the fact that everyone uh, just knows Chevy Chase is a complete giant dickhead. I I, I, I should probably
1: Legendary human phallus.
0: (laughs) Chevy Chase. (laughs) Um, About two weeks later, I got two scripts at my in-law's house in River Forest. One was home alone and with a note from john asking if i wanted to direct i thought wow this guy's really supporting me when no one else in hollywood was going to john was my savior so um yeah that's where that's where it all kind of begins and warner brothers is initially signed on to um to be the studio to uh fork over the money and then they make a Big, stupid, <laughs> dumb, dumb mistake. Do you want to explain the big, stupid, dumb, dumb mistake, Jake? Or do you want uh, me to I don't
1: it? have the uh We're, we're uh, getting a lot of this from a very in-depth yes, uh, oral history to, we from have Chicago s- Magazine. And you know who wrote it?
0: Uh, James James Hughes John Hughes' son How beautiful is that And I have to say So many of the quotes You're gonna hear today Is from this oral history uh, There was also An oral history From the actors on Oh it's trash But it's
1: terrible It's yeah. genuine Like it was some vice guy yeah. Who just had to Get a blog article Right
0: it? right And but, but this The other one That they did for Chicago Magazine mm-hmm. I believe Look it up It's online It's fucking awesome Um, And yeah Anyways But yes. Yeah, so Warner Bros
1: uh, so there was an issue with the budget. I believe it was uh, they had budgeted. Like the, the team had figured out that they needed $14.7 million. And wow. Warner Brothers were like, no, no. It
0: is, we're only going to give you $14 million. Dude. Yeah, yeah, At least one to like 15 people got so fired for this. <laughs> so fired for this. Like the one thing you can't do in Hollywood as a producer is be someone that like, passes up on unbelievable amounts of millions of dollars uh, in retrospect so anyway so they, they said no 14.7 not gonna do it 14 is what's gonna do it and the movie by the way ended up being 17 million so 14 million really would have been mm-hmm. too little to go with and they were like um can you show me your ass so I can fuck it for you because I'm
1: going somewhere else and so, uh, they ended up going to 20th Century Fox, I believe?
0: Yes. Uh, and, uh, they went to 20th Century Joe, uh, Joe The quote Roth. is amazing. It's just like,
1: hell yeah, we needed a Christmas movie. Good. All he right. said,
0: yeah, this is it from Roth. Um, uh, Joe Roth uh, decides to take the project on a Fox. He says, seemed like a no-brainer. Didn't cost much. I didn't have a Thanksgiving movie. I liked the idea. I loved the people involved. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, you fucking dumb fuck. Chris Columbus John Hughes wrote it. You've got like w- w- what? Like what? You? It's a
1: holiday movie. I, I don't know. I guess. I mean, on okay. To be fair, to be fair, uh, they didn't have John Williams on board yet, which like took the movie to a whole nother level. Yes,
0: I, they literally even said John Williams. Of course, the um the the man who scored the film, who scored the Star Wars trilogy and everything. Mm. And and um, I love that story. I what? Fuck. Should we save it for later? We'll save
1: it for later. But just to say and uh. The very idea that, you know, this script is doing something that hadn't been done before, which is the entire back of the movie is on a kid that's going to be like, you know, eight years old. That's true. And this is not the 1940s. We're not
0: like they said they literally needed a kid that still believes Santa was real. That was, like, their defining quality. Like, he had to be that young, which is very young.
1: So, so like, nobody on Earth would be like, yeah, sure, just cast the most oddly beautiful, charismatic, cool, real-life Bart Simpson boy. (laughs) Like, that didn't exist. (laughs) That didn't fucking exist. That's true. Like, yeah, and maybe launch a new level of child celebrity that will conquer (laughs) the world.
0: Like, that did not happen. I know. It's just such a cheap... That's so little money. Yeah. That's just
1: not much money. Yeah, but then, you know, you give an inch, it'll take a mile. So, you know,
0: it's a good producer All right, thing. We're not here to talk about your sex life, Jake, please. Miles of dick. <laughs> an ocean of wang. Speaking of an ocean of wang, let's talk about Macaulay Culkin. This is around where he comes in. I don't know. I'm just trying to do stuff. Um, so anyway. The anyways. Culkin
1: clan is a hive uh, of weird terribleness.
0: Born in New York City in 1980 to a former prick, actor, father, Christopher Cornelius Kit Wait, you're telling me
1: a stage parent had uh, their own failed uh, show business past that they kind of just imprinted onto their children as a hope to reclaim their lost
0: glory? Dude, have you ever seen My Kid Could Paint That? No. Oh my god, it's so sad. It's like it is like a kid, a brilliant child painter. Mm. She's like so little. And she's Is this a documentary? Yeah. And they're selling these paintings for like millions of like hundreds of thousands of dollars and stuff. And it's selling. Everyone's like, she's a child prodigy. And it's totally becomes obvious that the father is painting the paintings. And he always wanted to be an artist, and he's just using the kid as a gimmick to to finally, like, do the thing he wanted to do. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. Check out My Kid Can Paint That, by the way. Phenomenal. By the way, also, oh, you go by Kit? Kit Culkin? Fuck yourself. And I get to say these things, right? Because he's a dick, yeah. right? Okay, good. He's He's dead. Um, he I don't know if, I mean he, allegedly do I have to say allegedly right now he I mean I've,
1: yeah we have to blow. Th- we can't go into this whole saga <laughs> note for note but, uh, but I want
0: to it's you so know he's insane. working
1: he's doing a work a job his uh, partner is doing a work job and together they have seven kids in a tiny New York apartment the kids are all like cramped together in
0: one room the mother's literally a a telephone operator and the father is a sacristan or a caretaker at a local Catholic church. He's a janitor. Yeah. He's a janitor at church.
1: And so like he just starts like for lack of a better word just pushing their kids out there because like they know that there's a, it's New York City. There's always a market for kids in between the stage and television production. Yeah. And like just is like fuck it. Like you kids are going to earn us money.
0: Exactly. And so um, they uh, yeah, they started. Well, he's studying ballet at the School of American Ballet. He's also attending a Catholic school. This and then, is uh, Macaulay. Yeah, Macaulay. Not the father. The father's no. doing nothing. The father is sitting. No, around. the
1: father is pushing all of his individual children oh, yes. from a range of ages into auditions constantly. And then uh, how many kids? Do we know? I thought it was Sevens. Oh, my God. Yeah. How did I miss that? <laughs> because if you go to Wikipedia, they only have Rory and uh, Kieran? Kiernan?
0: Yeah, who's uh, doing very well as an actor, right? Yeah, um, they're both doing fine. Yeah.
1: Um, but uh, because they're the only ones noteworthy enough to have Wikipedia pages. Oh, but there's okay. a ton of Calkins out there.
0: I don't just look at Wikipedia. I looked at that oral history as well, please.
1: So, yeah, uh, Macaulay is showing up on on the stage. He's, like, doing – uh you know all these fancy metropolitan opera and like uh, ballets things need a cute kid to like dress up and be in these in in these productions and by and- the
0: way, this is starting at the age of four. his first um thing was a stage production of a show called uh, by the way ooh Alert Beach Babies. At the New York Philharmonic. That was his first thing. And then he has a small appearance in the TV movie, The Midnight Hour, in 1985. And then he makes his big screen debut with a film uh, with a very unfortunate title called uh, Rocket Gibraltar. That's literally like Rural Juror, like Rocket Mm. Gibraltar is the name of this poorly titled film. This is in 1988. He's two years older than me. He was born in 1984. So, I mean, this is... He's so young. I couldn't fathom ha- having this kind of a career. Um, I, it would but be awful. He's
1: getting a reputation for his oddly impeccable sense of comedic timing, mm. his uh, just general, like, precocious nature, his, like, adorable, tiny, you know, he's a kid that isn't, he's not an uggo. And, uh, he, he gets a reputation for ceiling steen, scenes. All the productions he's in are like, yeah, the play's okay, but there's this fucking kid, I don't know, every time he was on stage, the whole theater
0: was on fire. And he's starting to work with like big people. In in 1989, he does See You in the Morning, a film where he gets to act across from Jeff Bridges, Farrah Fawcett, and Drew Barrymore. I mean, he's like doing stuff. And so that's what kind of leads him to, of course, I think the, but the first time I saw Macaulay Culkin, definitely, and that amazing pancake scene. I love that pancake scene. I can, like, see it in my head right now. Uncle Buck, mm. the, the... Oh, I like
1: the interrogation. <laughs> the interrogation, like, yes. Yeah.
0: Well, that was what apparently convinced John... I read one place to convince John Hughes to go home and write Home Alone. Was the interrogation scene.
1: Just that this kid was just so in control. In- yeah. Com- yeah.
0: He was just such a, he was exactly, it was just so hilarious seeing a kid in that role dominating kind of over an adult like that. So I think, uh, I don't know how, how on the nose that is, but apparently he went right home after that and, and
1: married. Uh, no. Why? It's a long story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a long story. I love that scene. Uh, Uncle Buck's great. Uh, John Candy, of course, in that. Uh, he will be making a small appearance in Home Alone. As the Poca king of Chicago. As the polka king of Chicago. Um, and, uh, yes, of course, John Hughes also directed that. And, very obviously, if he's inspired enough to go home and write Home Alone, it's going to lead him to really pushing Macaulay Culkin as the star of the movie. Now, what's crazy is Chris Columbus still says, I must do my part. As, as a director, I must see other kids and make sure that that is exactly, you know, it's Macaulay who we need to go with. So he ends up seeing over 200 kids for the role, which is like a lot of kids. And I don't even, that would be a nightmare.
1: And only 50 of them ended up in the, sh- in the movie at the end.
0: And I actually, I think I've talked about this on the show before. I, I've, there are two different times where I had to audition with little kids for, for a commercial it is a nightmare. It is a whole other layer of difficulty to like as a casting director, like directing a kid in a scene for like auditions, especially because you're going to see an unbelievable amount of kids that are just not, cannot just even listen. It is very weird. Follow directions. You um,
1: know? like I feel like we've done this a couple of times with movies with kids that all the all the ta- all the praise is always like to the director being like yeah he really just like talks to the kids and gets in their heads and just bends them to his will yeah, and just really yeah. get, you know he just like turns them into these wonderful little robots to get the take <laughs> like it's very weird how much praise they get for manipulating these like
0: kids Columbus said then Macaulay read and you immediately knew this was the kid I knew subconsciously that John knew that was that was going to happen but it was really sweet of him to give me that sort of freedom and uh, there's a lot of that with with the relationship between John Hughes and Chris Columbus this loving giving awesome relationship that just clearly would nurture this giant knockout blockbuster hit you know this is not a story of like horrible turmoil and you know it's not that making a movie story that we've had before with like something like Evil Dead you know or something like that this was just like they put a bunch of heart into this movie, you know? I mean, all the only thing is there's poor stunt people, but we'll talk about that for sure. Oh,
1: also, uh, what's uh, Vic? Vic Culkin, the bad Culkin? What's his name? The dad. shit, Whatever, shitty dad Culkin. Yeah. Uh, even, even given this once-in-a-lifetime
0: chance to have his... Oh, Kit. I'm Kit. sorry. I thought you were talking about in the movie. Oh, no, I'm no, God no, no. Confused.
1: Kit Culkin uh, was going to walk away from Home Alone it, unless uh, Columbus also cast Kiernan. And that's why Kiernan Culkin is there as, like, the little brother.
0: That's so stupid.
1: Because he's got to play all the tables. He's got to make sure that if this blonde fucker doesn't make it.
0: At least Kieran's also good, so yeah. there is that. Um, okay, so let's get into some more of the casting now. You've got Robert De Niro, Rowan Atkinson, Bob Hoskins, Danny DeVito, Christopher Lloyd, Dudley Moore, Phil Collins, and John Lovitz, all considered for the role of one of the Bandits. Uh, which is uh, Harry Lime? De Niro passed, uh, rejected the role, and Lovitz rejected the role. And I'm very happy Lovitz rejected the role, by the way. But mm. Lovitz, why are you rejecting that role, bro? What you got cooking? What are you he making? He was too
1: busy meditating in solitude, preparing himself for the <laughs> critic. Isn't that
0: like Mars movie? <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. But anyways. Uh, so um. That's how we end up getting towards um. The casting, uh, Daniel Stern has a lovely little dis- little story about his audition. The script struck a chord in me. I hadn't gotten a chance to express that kind of physical comedy since I was a kid. I thought, I can hit a fucking home run with this. I went to an audition for Chris. I wanted it so bad. When I left, I thought, I could do that better. It was the only time in my life I called and said, can I come back? Chris told me later he was already going to cast me, but he saw me audition again <laughs> And He just let him do it, even though he was gonna. Oddly cast enough, him Daniel. Again. St- uh, again,
1: this is where the money. I, lo- thing- I love
0: Daniel Stern. By the way, so much. He's so great in this movie. He's so. He's funny. amazing in this. Movie. I but I and I love him in like oh I, I I just so many actors. We haven't even started talking. I haven't started my gush fest about Catherine O'Hare. But there are just so many like lovable, awesome actors in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, Pesci. Ugh, the old man? Blossom? That scene what is in, <laughs> the church with the old man is so good? All right, but anyways, what are you doing?
1: That was one of the first uh, po- points of contention with the original studio was that to bring in Daniel Stern would have cost extra money because by this point, he was already making good money through the Wonder Years. Uh, you know, the Fred yeah, Savage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, classic uh, TV show I don't where think he I provided re- the narration. I don't and think I
0: realized it. that he did the narration for that, by the way. Oh, that was until, like the first thing my dad like this. would
1: like elbow me. While watching Home Olympia, like, do you recognize that voice? And I was like, no. And he was like, it's the grown up Kevin from the Wonder Years. And I was like,
0: no, it's not. It <gasps> blew like, my mind. And you were like, I'm going to go try cigarettes for the first time. What? No. <laughs> you didn't say that, to No,
1: him? I, that didn't happen until
0: I was started comedy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's a good time to start. I'll tell you what. Got to do
1: something in between <laughs> the shows
0: <laughs> to try to numb the pain.
1: I miss cloves, man. They were, they were, Ugh. they tasted like fucking. Gingerbread cookies.
0: <laughs> um, so, also, um, Hughes and Columbus felt Joe Pesci was going to be great for the for the role. They already kind of were eyeing him, um, and, and mostly because, and this is kind of funny because the mo- this movie is not a comedy, uh, but they loved his comedy stylings in Raging Bull. Yeah, yeah. And he is hilarious in that movie. And that movie is amazing. Of course, Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull, if you haven't seen that before, you should watch it. I
1: mean, his whole deal is like being this weird, undignified yet threatening presence.
0: Yeah, exactly. And 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 then on top of that, you've got tall, lanky, stern, and then short, wide, peshy, just a perfect the perfect comedy duo looking looking too. Daniel Stern says um, about uh, the, his relationship with Joe Pesci, Everyone assumed we were thrown together for the first time on Home Alone, but we'd made each other giggle on the set for an, in another movie years before that. We were both cut out of. I'm dancing as fast as I can is the name of the movie. We played people in a mental institution. Joe walked around all the time with his rolled up tube of architectural drawings. That was his character. And during one of the takes... There's a ping pong table in the middle of the room, and Joe takes his tube of paper and puts it up his nose and snorts the line of ping pong balls.
1: <laughs> I fell on the floor laughing. A friendship born from cocaine humor. <laughs>
0: yes! I became his friend right then. And uh, they had a kind of a funny time on set. Definitely, there was a, a lot of talk about us, um, their uh, issues with swearing. On mm-hmm. um, in the film, and apparently Macaulay Culkin walked around with like a brown paper bag and would like collect money from them if they swore. Um, what a little shit! <laughs> what a little what a scamper! Um, and uh, that was kind of a, a running gag uh, situation for them. And then uh, so so obviously, uh, and also so much casting's done out of Chicago. And what has. Chicago, what is in Chicago that is like the premier place to a pool for comedy actors well of course it's second city and so many actors are coming you know from Canada going to second city in Chicago and vice versa going up to second city in Toronto mm-hmm. Toronto right um and uh, back and forth, Second City, the premier improv theater. Uh, there was a television show called uh, SCTV. There was all sketches uh, born out of the Second City theater. Uh,
1: Rick Moranis, John Candy.
0: I can't even. There will be a Second City episode, probably at some point when we finally stop hating comedy enough to like do stuff about like comedy. It's stuff
1: comedy like that. month. at Wizard and the Bruiser. <laughs> we're
0: doing Monty Python. We're gonna be so drunk on whiskey that month. Oh my We do God. need. We do need to do Monty Python like sooner than fucking later for sure or like we need or at least like holy grail before John Cleese dies before yes please (laughs) Um, so anyways Catherine O'Hara
1: he's been huffing gas he's like he wants it
0: he wants it bad (laughs) (laughs) she uh, Catherine O'Hara comes in She worked, as I said, on Second City, on SCTV, doing tons of impressions, stuff like that, Um, working very closely with John Candy and Dan Aykroyd and folks of that ire, Um, and then also ends up working with uh, Tim Burton on a lot of Tim Burton films, like another movie I'm sure we'll probably cover at some point, Beetlejuice, and um, after that, a bunch of Christopher Guest films, you know, best in show, she is... Her career rules. She has an amazing acting career, an amazing comedy career. She's so endearing, and yet she can also do these characters and impressions. And at the same time, her portrayal of the mother in this movie is so endearing and so like every mom in a way that is
1: just just
0: perfect the 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 well you know at at times both flustered and you know um forgetful and things like that and but and also other-
1: driven and like yes. unwilling to compromise yes. unwilling to do anything.
0: it's yeah. it's awesome and and just rewatching, I feel like she really stood out to me on upon rewatching that's this that's
1: because when she walks through the door, everybody in the room is crying
0: <laughs> it's she's so amazing nah, i nah, l- nah, I just nah, love her, nah, and i didn't I don't think I don't know until I like. Went, uh, uh did this episode i didn't like realize how much i really like yeah. her and i really like her um also uh the role of uncle frank was actually written for kelsey grammer oh weird <laughs> it's kind of funny he would have been amazing but oh the, the, weird
1: so was he suppo- cuz like these um, cuz there's something that's it's actually it's it's a little it's actually this weird little through line in the movie but mm. the idea that kevin's family is like kind of nouveau riche there's yeah. one line in the movie where like the da- they're loading into first class on this Flight to pa- this peak tourist right. flight to Paris, right? And um, you know, the the dad just kind of goes like, "Yeah, we used to like the only vacation we used to take was back in the old Dodge." Uh huh. And Uncle Frank, who's supposed to be his brother, is like, "Yeah, and like I remember," and he's actively like stealing shit for yeah, first yeah, class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole time well, he has this cheap. like,
0: I mean, the running, cheap and the running the running gag with him is he's cheap, yeah, right. and a, and an asshole, but yeah.
1: So, like, there's, like, this level of, like, class resentment and weirdness with Uncle Frank hmm. that, like, I don't... Kelsey Grammer would be, like, too dignified.
0: Right. He'd be too fancy. Yeah, yeah. You're totally... It's Uncle Frank. Like, yeah. Like, Frank, you know... Well, you, also, I could see how maybe a different actor might have informed uh, a revision. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, also, a little tidbit here. Chris Fartley auditioned for the role of the Santa Claus... But uh, failed, and uh, purportedly because he was uh, uh, hammered from an all-night bender. Yeah. So he was, like, in and out of the room really fast. But that Don't been- worry,
1: though. In the SNL cold open with Macaulay Culkin, he gets to throw his fat body into a table full of pizzas.
0: <laughs> oh, Jesus. Man, uh, I Farley. really wish – yeah, I wish he had gotten the Santa Claus roll. That would have just, like – Put the movie over the moon for me personally mm. for my like childhood nostalgia having Farley in there. So production begins now that we have our cast. Let's get into the making of this film um, and uh, and the just the hailstorm that was uh, the reaction to it, the reception to it. Of course it's filmed in Chicago and uh, it was also uh, helpful that uh, I think John Hughes purposely filmed things in Chicago a lot. Because it also doing that just kept them that much further away from the studios Mm -hmm. and just gave them the freedom to really just do what they wanted to do and make the movie they wanted to make. And I think they really got to do that here. And it seems like uh, he built relationships around having that sort of freedom. And uh, they definitely get it here. They used New Trier West High School. And this is actually the location of many of John Hughes' films. They were actually just using the high school to build sets within it. Most of that house interior stuff is actually filmed um, in the high school. Uh, Though they did also film a lot of stuff in the actual house that people will come to visit, uh, as we'll get into later. Uh, Yeah, it was actually a great uh, little uh, line from the house's owner uh, that they rented out. He said, in that house, there's a master bedroom suite with four rooms. Basically, we just moved into that. We put a hot plate up there to cook. We didn't have to cook that much because we had full access to the food truck that the crew used, which our daughter, who was six at the time, loved. That would have probably been awesome. Well,
1: you missed the the most important thing is that... um, they had to stay in that master bedroom because if they had taken up the studio's offer of a free apartment to stay in, mm. uh, if the crew wanted to, like, knock down a wall in the house and no one was around right. to, like, tacitly disapprove, they were free to do it according to their contract. So gotcha. they, out of just fear for the well-being of their home, they had to be, like, prisoners. And that's, like, set. that
0: home was built in the 20s. It's a historic home. It's, like, that would have been awful. <laughs>
1: Um, another thing that I feel like is kind of swept under the rug about this movie that we have to acknowledge is the work of the director of photography, Julio, Julio Macat, who, uh, has this like amazing, like kind of dual upbringing as from an Italian and Argentinian family and everything about the movie's visuals are so consciously decided, like, uh, think, okay, in your mind. Think about how grandiose and huge that church was in your head. Uh Uh-huh. Think about that. Like, you know, vault, like giant ceilings, cavernous even. You can find photos of that Episcopal church in the suburbs of Chicago. It's tiny. Yeah. It's like nothing. It's just a normal-ass, like, modest church. But the way they shot it and lit it was to make what a church felt like to a kid.
0: The entire house is like... Glistening, and the colors are brighter than bright. Well, the, the, definitely for for that stuff, for the for that, they were going for that warmth that one feels around the holidays. That brightness too was also trying to be just as warm as humanly possible. And every time they sh- showed the family in the plane in Paris, whatever, or uh, it's always darker, colder, th- cold, stiff. blue, stiff, and just being. Not, Even being, the
1: cameras are filmed straight on with the actors outside of the house. Well, in the house, everything is kind of at an upward yes. angle to represent Kevin's um, perspective. On top of that, the, he explicitly says in a design document that like the goal is to, you know, that feeling when you come home after you spend time in college and everything's like a little bit shorter and a little bit smaller than you remember it was. They want like the movie to feel like the opposite of that. Ah. They want the McAllister's house to feel as like big and inviting as your childhood home.
0: Yes. Uh I'll, can I do the
1: quote? Oh, I just I just want to say that like the the guy's resume is like a murderer's row of like <laughs> movies that shouldn't have looked as good as like think they, they deserve like stuff like Home Alone 2 and like Ace Ventura Pet Detective and mm-hmm. uh <laughs> mm-hmm. Miracle on 34th Street and just uh oh shit and Ballistic X versus Sever. Okay, ignore that one. <laughs>
0: Uh, Julio says about shooting the kids' perspective when it came to Home Alone... We thought about every shot in terms of the point of view of the kid. Because of that, we used wider angles. The height of the camera was lower than you would normally have. Our ceilings were important because we were looking up a lot. Because we thought that kids see everything in an amplified way. We made the lights in the house feel a little bit brighter. Everything was goosed up a notch. It's kind of the reverse of when you go back to the house where you were raised and everything seems so small. That's awesome. And it's so subtle. You know what I mean? It's not something that... I think that's when you realize he did such an amazing job. Is is when no, you, he also
1: did Pitch Perfect, I'm oh, sorry.
0: But that that's when you know he did an amazing job, when that's something on hindsight you notice, but you don't really know or think about it or notice it. You know what I mean? Um, but it, it made it feel authentic to the yes, kid audience. totally. And it makes it feel authentic to the adult, too, because you're still remembering your childhood when you watch this movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and, and they're another, making you yeah, do that. Yeah, a
1: conscious desire to, like, keep things timeless like you know there's no cell phones or iPads obviously but it you know it's it could be the 1970s for mm. everything that's available you mm-hmm. know nothing is like too dated he's not listening to like modern music he's watching old movies
0: speaking of which angels with filthy souls mm. It's a fake noir film that Hughes created. Uh, I, that was definitely a factoid that I learned at one point and was very surprised Blown to hear. It it. Away. I really thought that was from an old movie. It is so authentic feeling. Um, an old black and white noir. The star of it, Johnny was veteran actor Ralph Foodie. He's a character actor. Um, You also might recognize him. He played the police dispatcher in The Blues Brothers. And um, it was all filmed in one day using black and white negative film to really get that authentic look. And I think that's how it really comes across.
1: I'm going to give you to the count of ten. One, (laughs) two, (laughs) ten. It's a weird theme in the Home Alone movies, how much people are – just incapable of discerning the human yes, voice. From, yes. Well, I don't know what sound system the McAllisters <laughs> have. Must be some fucking Dolby shit.
0: Well, it, well, it definitely wasn't a talk boy, not yet. Uh, that's They made that. Yeah. For the movie. They totally made that. Remember how cool it was when you knew a kid who had one? I had one. I really?
1: Made, I, I mean, the first podcast I ever made was. A bad radio show I, was, I made on my talk?
0: That's amazing. I was sad when I realized Talk boy is Home Alone 2, so we can't really talk about it too much mm. in this episode. Um, let's talk, though, about a different boy. And by boy, I mean old man. Old man Marley, uh, played by Roberts Blossom, and he's phenomenal in this movie. I did this research uh, before I rewatched the movie, mm-hmm. I'm gonna say this quote. But then I really, so I really because of this quote, I really focused on that scene when it came up, and it is awesome. Like it is so good. Like you see a different performance too from Macaulay Culkin, even because of just how good Robert Blossom is at. Just setting him at ease and making him feel no,
1: that presence is real. That awe is it's real. Incredible.
0: So uh Columbus says about shooting that scene and about Robert's Blossom, aka the oh fuck, what was the name? The shovel uh slasher, what yeah, is it? The, the
1: South End Shovel <laughs> Man. Um
0: shooting that church the scene salt
1: preserves the body. <laughs>
0: I love that part. I that is so such a fucking they nailed that way that kids are with each also, other. Also again,
1: another another thing that John Williams does to escalate the score. The musical sting every time he appears is just like dun, 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 you know, like whatever, yeah. like classic John yeah. Williams and then just you just see old man Marley and you're just like bum 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 like it turns
0: into a slasher movie yes. out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, totally shooting that church scene was a kind of weirdly spiritual moment. It was one of the few times on the movie when the actor made my job easier with Macaulay because he was so gentle and worked so well with him. And Macaulay was really focused in that scene. And it was because of Roberts. He just commanded Macaulay's attention. It was a magical moment and you rewatch it and you feel just that. It is just, there's a softness to his voice. There's a, there's just a, a beauty in his voice that is sets set me at ease you know what i mean and and it's a different like his cadence like the way he says sentences just feels different in a way that is very comforting and just very very beautiful in in terms of the way an actor can deliver his lines um also we've got john candy in the movie who we mentioned before oh uh, it's it's supposed to be a cameo and like it, you know it's just for people to be like hey that's john candy They only had 24 hours, 24 hours uh, to shoot it. They literally built the truck interior uh, set right next to the airport so they could literally like run from the airport straight to the truck interior and get the rest of that. And then I have this quote from Catherine O'Hara about their shoot day. And then I have a request to make to the fans. I'm going to say this real quick, though, first. Mm -hmm. I remember being on that stage. John Hughes was there, and I swear we worked for 21 hours straight improvising. Candy would start a bit, John Hughes would start a bit, and Candy would pick up on it, and we would just go with it. It was all in the moment. We'd start a ridiculous conversation and go as far as we could. Chris told me later how we couldn't use most of it. He laughed and said, you're supposed to be looking for your kid, and you're just having a good time with these guys <laughs> in a truck, but my, my request is can we see this footage? I want so badly to see these improv scenes between John Hughes and Catherine O'Hara and John Candy. Where does this footage? I,
1: honestly, the what they kept is amazing. Like it's the great. the the anecdotes. Like uh, we left our son. F- I can't. I can't do the quote right. I was like, we yeah. left him in a funeral home <laughs> all day, just there with a corpse. <laughs> was not until that evening, like the night that we were finally like got our heads back on and we went back to get him. Don't worry though. He he he, he was fine in like six seven yeah. weeks. <laughs>
0: exactly. A few months later, he was all right. Yeah. <laughs> Um. Yeah, just fantastic I really want that footage though Please, please, please give me that footage But yeah, John Candy, such a small bit such a beautiful little part of the film. Just a nice little thing. They literally didn't even um, actually uh, show them parting ways because they ran out of time. So that's why you never see Catherine O'Hara, like, leaving the truck. Mm-hmm. I think that was originally intended that they would see that. Yeah. There was also originally intended a shot at the very end of the movie, like maybe maybe in the middle of the credits or something like that, or at the very end is a button. Oh,
1: no, yeah, it's a stinger.
0: Yeah, where Pesci and uh, where the, the wet bandits... Um, Marvin Harry. They hear the movie. They hear um, they're watching
1: the movie in prison. Yeah, angels and with hear fil- the and, line. angels
0: with filthy souls, and they hear the line, and they uh, and they uh, realize that they were totally duped yet again. Speaking about them being duped, I think it's time to talk about these traps, baby. These fun tricks and traps, and the the glorious stuntmen uh, uh, th- th- that. Put themselves through hell to get these amazing physical comedy bits
1: well okay let's talk about slapstick for a second because like sure. it's it's kind of it's kind of lame now like we we just sure. did an episode on um on leslie nielsen i think it
0: was lame then in a way it, but but it they they i feel like they resold slapstick to people oh abso- that's they, what i'm saying right i think it was even kind of lame then but they just did it in a way that was so hard hitting like the sound effects the the stunts themselves. Just the
1: originality in it. And that used to be like the bread and butter of cartoons. Everything yeah. from Mickey Mouse to, uh, you know, the reason why it's an anvil, the reason why it's a piano, the reason why. It's because it's these familiar objects that you know would hurt, but like they get abstracted and they get kind of like uh, uh, signified into, a, into the point where it becomes cliches and there's no connection to the reality anymore and so that's how like you know a banana peel becomes just like goofy and not like a recognizable thing that in your own life you can like be like oh shit i know i've been walking through the streets of new york in the 1930s and i know that banana peel's a motherfucker but you replace it with hot wheels cars and you actually show someone in real life busting ass six feet up in the air and landing completely on the ground and like it's funny again it's relatable again it's real again
0: yeah absolutely I I'm, I'm fucking
1: you. hyped up on this fucking <laughs> shenanigans. <laughs> By your fire, fucked up on shenanigans, teachers, right now.
0: Uh, Raja Gosnell the editor said this about uh, the last section of the film the end of the movie seems incredibly complex but it is for the most part a series of vignettes each with a beginning middle and an end there was the setup of the trap here comes the victim and then the trigger is pulled it didn't get complex in the sense of a car chase or battle scene where you have five balls in the air at any given time it was really a question of getting in and out and keeping Kevin involved so there wasn't a sense that the house is just a machine his little responses, yes were sort of The most crucial part we didn't have a lot of choices for the ending particularly because you couldn't put the stuntman through one or two more of those takes they had to get really quick brief takes um i also know that um john hughes and chris columbus uh uh, or the john hughes script rather they they had the trick the traps in them in there but they were broad they were they were they were generalized wait
1: no the way i heard it was that the the actual timing and the intricacies of the trap are in the script it's yeah. actually stuff like um the mom's return oh, okay. and old man marley and uh stuff like that that they had to add later they that added was missing and changed yeah. oh okay. but the 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 fucking i know co- they
0: were in there i just i heard there was like there was they they got to play a little bit with how they kind of pulled oh out. no
1: no i watched um there's like a you know a very vhse making of vignette i guess. Uh, that you can watch on YouTube that they were like, no, no, the traps were all laid out in John Hughes' script.
0: Ah, this is what it is. This quote from Freddie Heiss, who was the stunt coordinator on the project. In the script, the stunts were written, but they weren't fully defined. There was a lot of room to invent and play with them. Maybe it's just the stunt coordinator trying to like get a little more credit. Um like
1: how you're gonna pull them off is yeah. like a whole nother story.
0: Chris and John allowed us to invent as we went along. The stunts we did on Home Alone, no one ever had done before. Um they definitely talked a lot together, Columbus and Hughes, about getting the stunts to feel real and violent, as that led to funnier moments. And I think upping that violence, upping the upping the the just the sound effects, everything. I still um,
1: get like a deep ups. I get deeply upset when I watch uh, Daniel Stern step on that nail.
0: Yeah, and and uh, the the Christmas ornaments too. Oh
1: yeah, <laughs> sugar glass. Like, that Ooh. one was easy. That one was easy to figure out. It's just sugar
0: glass. Yeah, totally. Um, and uh, also though they um, <laughs> they even were worried that the stuntmen were dead at times after certain. Oh, takes. so
1: it's it's more so than like um the 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 BB gun that's you know whatever they just played that uh, the uh, the paint cans you just cut away real quick um, the iron uh, you know they. It's uh, Daniel Stern actually talks about how to get that shot of the iron falling onto his head from the perspective of the iron. They were basically just dropping a 300 pound film camera like inches away from his face, and he just had to trust that it would hold. Yeah,
0: well, that's like science, right? The way that um, something can swing, you know what I mean? Like they just probably did the math on it. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, there's there was X amount of rope. Yeah, (laughs) it's just he just had to have a lot of faith in that rope. Um, but it's the slipping on the ice that gigantic. Like, legs in the air, full splay pratfall is insane. That is deadly. That is training. That is, like pure stuntman physicality i love um, too the, the oh also in the hd era it is so obvious that that's not joe pesci yeah Yeah. <laughs> because yes. it lingers on his it lingers yes. on him like splayed on the ground and it's just like then it cuts back to a different man on the ground also in that joe pesci yeah uh, that slip- is
0: by the way that is ex bull rider troy brown doing the part and apparently he was like he just was awesome. They love. They had a really hard find time trying to find somebody actually that was the same shape and size as Joe Pesci. Wait, what happened to all the short stuntmen? <laughs> exactly right. Uh, oh, oh! But they were they were on Days of Thunder. <laughs> they yeah, had yeah, to cover
1: were, for Tom. They were on the NAS-
0: little superstar Tom Cruise. They were on a movie that we will never cover for this show. <laughs> called Days of Thunder about NASCAR. Um, I remember that a lot. And I also went to the Days of Thunder ride at uh, Charlotte's Paramounts Carowinds. Um, and that's about it. Also,
1: uh, in the scene where uh, when Joe Pesci is and uh, at the front door getting burnt in the hand and, like, busting ass on the steps, uh, the snow looks really weird and dumb and fake. Yeah. And that is
0: because it is hand-shaved, crushed ice. So it went back and forth, right? There was some moments in the film where there was a blizzard, so they got some snow. Well, they were filming and and over the course the of bat- months yeah, in and Chicago. S- exactly. And
1: so once you have shots that establish that it's snowy outside... For continuity's sake, you can't not have the snow anymore. Right. Especially if you're, because it's a movie, you're filming stuff out of order. So, yeah, there's a couple of scenes where you can see like just this real chunky, flat, weird snow. And that's because they couldn't get a snow machine and they just had to get trucks of bagged ice and hand crush it into something resembling snow.
0: Also, I love for the stair fall. They actually put plywood on the stairs and then would paint the perspective of the stairs so that he could do a specific kind of fall. I was looking for
1: that. I couldn't find that shot. I yeah, yeah. but I really wanted to But I see read it.
0: that and I was like, That's amazing. So they like made it they made plywood look like the stairs so that you couldn't tell by doing perspective painting so that he could do a certain type of fall that was Just way over the top that you wouldn't be able to pull off if you were falling downstairs Um, as normal. But um, also, uh, this Freddie Heist stunt coordinator has this great quote to say about the various stunts, especially the falls in in the uh, in the film in the old days if someone fell or slipped on marbles or whatever was in the script guys would just kind of fall down we wanted to up the ante and make those guys literally look like they were hitting a patch of black ice feet up over your head flat on your back it changed the way people did pratfalls in the movie business every comedy for the next 15 years everybody would call in for an interview and say we want that home alone fall which must have been the worst for that guy, is it? Definitely doesn't sound like it was a very, uh, like it was a very um, fun and easy thing to do, uh, doing those falls for that movie.
1: There's an entire genre of YouTube video that I discovered this week, uh, which is people trying to test out or like ask doctors about the survivability of the Home Alone house, and uh, resoundingly, like the first paint can would just snap your neck. <laughs> yeah exactly uh, Vsauce 3 did a really good version of this but like yeah no it's these people would have been dead five times before they even made it to the front door and I
0: know I've been a broken record about that but I do have to talk about the sound effects for a second Michael Will Holt was the supervising uh, Will Hoyt rather was the supervising sound editor and he said um, all the Pratt Falls were unique we took a frozen roast beef and hit it against the ground to get the sound of a body hitting the ground we'd put a soldiering oh
1: you're t- we're talking foley work
0: Yes, Foley work, exactly. We'd we'd put a soldiering iron onto chicken skin to make the flesh bubble and sizzle. That's a good one. Everything was handmade. We wanted the sound to be realistic but also have some humor in it. We played the sound effects big and bold as if they were part of the score, and I think that is – and actually John Williams made it a point to – Stop the music for um, those big hits and the which sound is how effects. it worked
1: in old cartoons.
0: Right, right. They so, would build
1: and build and build, and, and then, then the moment of impact would hit all the harder.
0: And and uh, yeah, and the sound would, uh, the music would go out, and you'd really hear those sounds very big. And I mean, for me as a kid, I just love. I think I think that was the thing. It was so over the top violent, but obviously they kept getting up. Also, I love the fact that old man Mooney just has to come in and smack him on the back of the head with a Even shovel. Even though they understood so much that would be the last thing that would have hurt them at that point.
1: Uh, do you want to hear a fucked up story? I don't. This wasn't in the article, but this is 100 percent real. Okay. Um, when um, Kevin goes for the. Uh, Fancy like loop around to the other house, and the wet bandits finally get him and put him up on the coat. Oh, the
0: injury! Yeah, yeah, yeah. The- um,
1: the the fun riff that Joe Pesci just did on the spot was, "I'm gonna eat your fingers," which is a weird riff. Let's it's just say riff. it's a weird riff. It's a weird riff. It does. I hit, mean,
0: he's doing a lot of cocaine with Scorsese at the time, but yeah, that is a weird riff.
1: It does hit upon a lot of child. It is an obscure, you know, an absurdly childish threat that a grown man would have. Yeah, like something a boogeyman would right, say. I'm right. gonna eat your fingers. And uh, in multiple takes, he had to bite down on Macaulay Culkin's finger. And uh, one take, whoops, he drew blood. And to this day, uh, Macaulay Culkin has a scar on his knuckle from Joe Pesci. That's so funny. Uh, Also, the sweater was an elaborate harness that allowed him to be hung repeatedly.
0: Um, So now we uh, talk. We've already mentioned John Williams. I've talked about him before. I don't really have a lot about his life. I'm sorry to say this, but the Star Wars episodes. uh, Yeah. (laughs) He's amazing. John Williams is incredible. And I love to, they um Spielberg got him the score. They had originally had someone else uh signed up to do the score, but that that the someone po- else like had the to initial, drop out.
1: The initial release posters didn't even have John Williams' name on it. That's how late to the game he got signed on.
0: Um so uh yeah. So so Spielberg actually gets Chris in touch with John Williams and um, he sent uh, John Williams apparently like got a, a copy of it and loved it and um, loved the movie so much he was like alright cool I will score this movie he makes uh, his his initial tape of the score literally on a t- like tape tape um, a cassette tape rather and sends it over he's on the set of a different movie uh, Chris Columbus is and at lunch they just throw the tape in and listen to it and um, and he's just like this this movie just became like um uh, uh, like on on a whole other level now. This uh, is the most amazing thing that uh, having I John love, Williams score your movie is like the best thing that can happen to your movie.
1: Here's a fucking weird thing uh that I didn't realize until we did this until we had to look into it. Uh <laughs> the theme has fucking lyrics. Weird. Yeah, like the 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 kind of angelic background choir singing that like in your head you just hear is like it's like there's you can actually like look them up and it's like real weird. It's like candles in the window <laughs> shadows painting the ceiling gazing at the far glow feeling that gingerbread feeling precious moments special people. Happy faces I can see Somewhere in my memory Christmas 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 uh, the point is that's pretty heartwarming that's pretty good that'll bring a tear to your eye yeah. but I fucking love when it kicks into second gear whenever there's like big suspenseful action where the synths kick in where it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. when
0: it becomes a rock and roll jam it's
1: a, it's a, it bops
0: yeah I always, I always have a full bong loaded uh, and I wait until that ha- that's when I hit it you know what I mean whenever I watch Home Alone once a month all right, so But this, honest
1: to God, I swear, the movie would have been just like, it could have been just, you know, jingle all the way, but right. the, that soundtrack, like, it, it, it just, level. it just,
0: like, it, without. I didn't even think about it until Chris Columbus said it in, in one of these quotes or whatever, and, um, and then watching the movie and being like, you're right, like, this music adds so much to. Because even
1: without the movie, this is like, an, it's an amazing piece of Christmas time orchestral music and the fact that it gets to be associated with this movie just it it's 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 symbiosis at the highest degree.
0: Okay, so this movie comes out. They do a test screening in Chicago before it does and it's just obvious the audience is fucking loving it. And John Hughes and Chris Columbus both are just like we fucking did it. We know. Mm-hmm. It. it it hits it hits at a record of number 1 weekends with 12 different weekends. I love this story um, that um, Daniel Stern, right? Yeah, Daniel Stern said about uh, uh, Billy Crystal because he was doing um, City Slickers, which he's also great in. And Billy Crystal just kept coming in with a Variety magazine once a week and just being like, "Still number one, huh? <laughs> this is fucking crazy, huh?" And Daniel Stern's like, "Oh wow, I guess it's a big hit. I don't know. <laughs> Are you serious with this <laughs> shit? <laughs> Even imagine a movie right now hitting twelve weeks, twelve at number one. weeks at number one. It's unbelievable. It is the high. It was the highest-grossing live-action comedy film all the way up until 2011." when The Hangover 2 surpassed it. Um, and It's
1: still the number one explicitly Christmas movie yeah. uh, ever made. That's without inflation. It's still number one earner in terms of, like, this is a Christmas movie, yeah. Christmas movie. Uh, if you throw in movies that are, like, vaguely related to Christmas, like Die Hard and Gremlins and shit, only Iron Maybe. Man 3 outgrosses it. And that was an international market China fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. crazy Marvel movie. Right, right. To this day
0: like even w- like w- and and I mean we're talking about a movie too by the way you know that was filmed largely like set in a house mm-hmm. uh with a very small cast you know, and there were like eight
1: hundred child actors in that house. Well,
0: that was oh my god. We didn't even talk about that too. By the way, that that sounded like a nightmare shoot. The, all the family stuff stuff. Just-
1: Technically, are, is uh is the are the is the Pete and Pete actors? I know Danny. Does Danny still have his show with the, his former co-star? Oh uh, the yeah, they do podcast? have
0: podcasts. Yeah, yeah. I we, we should so. like
1: ask. We should we should definitely <laughs> hound this poor guy about his former work.
0: <laughs> He's in it. He's in the house.
1: He's one of the kids.
0: Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's, that sounded like a zoo, but still, even then it's just a family, it's just families, it's kids and adults and it's, it's very, set in like very few locations and just so simple. And that is a very small budget for a movie. And, um, so for it to be so explosively popular is pretty amazing. There were literally people started showing up at the house in Chicago to get a picture, including the ambassador of Japan, which is amazing. The ambassador of Japan shows up in all these limos and stuff just to get one photo. Um, very, very, This did very big in Japan. They talked about how just worldwide this did really well because a lot of p- people connected with, like, poorer countries, um, poorer folks, connected with the, the Macaulay Culkin, the kid, as, like, being oppressed and being, you know, and and, and overcoming those things and, and, and being self-sufficient um, was actually a... Ch- yeah,
1: ch- it's Okay, A so connector so for, there's,
0: so, for folks okay, around the world. let's, let's
1: get into this. Um, why? Why this movie? Why Macaulay Culkin? And the fact is, is that uh, Macaulay Culkin managed to deliver like this perfect image of the precocious child, this like streets wise beyond his years, highly capable, sassy, clever kid that every kid assumes themselves to be, and yet he still manages to like get in like a level of vulnerability. So like yeah. he's not annoying because we can see when he's scared. We can see when he's overwhelmed, even though he gets to be a giant like Bart Simpson dickbag bag throughout half the movie as well. And he gets to just indulge in like the heights of American, like commercialism. He gets to drink the Pepsi and order the pizza and watch the movies and ice cream and microwavable Mac and cheese and toys and all this cool shit um he gets to jump on the bed he has this whole mansion a mansion to i himself. love part
0: two which is such a little kid thing and they filmed it in a funny way but it's just him running into different rooms screaming for no <laughs> yeah. reason it's like i would i would have totally done that as a little kid and at the same time i'm literally just watching a kid run around the house screaming and that's supposed to be like oh cool he's alone
1: <laughs> uh even even the the aftershave like uh scene is like it's like everyone wants to have, watch a kid be a little man. Like It's yeah, like this yeah. weird universal thing that we
0: are all like delighted by. And, oh, and outsmart adults.
1: Not, not just outsmart. Please, to call the trap sequence outsmarting is to, is to undersell this child. Yeah, I love physically that, dominates these adult men. I
0: love, too, that he ends up just calling 911, so he just could have called 911. No, he stole the
1: toothbrush. He had to call 911 from the other house. So oh. that he was, he
0: wouldn't get in trouble
1: because he thought he was still like wanted for toothbrush
0: theft. That's right. That's
1: that is the internal.
0: It, That's what it was. OK, cool. There's
1: like some weird like you could easily make an Internet fan theory about how this movie was, uh, you know, all in Kevin's head the whole time because the movie is so squarely right. in his perspective and everything. So is-
0: much just talking to himself. It's so I, what Ferris a,
1: Bueller. Everyone wants because yeah. everyone's the star of their like. Right. He talks to himself the same way we talk to ourselves. Like the, this, this self-centered, highly capable Uber child that every kid thinks they are, and every adult is fascinated by. It's it's uh, it's it's honestly a crazy thing that Macaulay Culkin got to live in real life because everyone wants him to be this this fully formed adult baby kid even though it actually robbed him of the most essential years of his formative childhood. Uh,
0: his father would say things like, do it or I'll hit you. He's uh, Macaulay Culkin said, everything he tried to do in life, I excelled at before I was 10 years old.
1: Uh, he was <laughs> one of the only people in Saturday Night Live history to not rely on cue cards. Whoa. Because his father mercilessly <laughs> drilled uh, him on his
0: lines throughout and the week. So he, you know, he does Home Alone 2. He does My Girl. Oh,
1: oh, 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 oh. Did you see the thing? Um. So remember the good son? Yeah. How it was weird that he was the bad kid yeah, and nobody it liked weird. it because nobody wanted to watch Kevin McAllister be the, the bad kid. Uh-huh. Uh, that was his dad who, like, demanded that he be given the role of the villain, of villain because otherwise if he doesn't get cute, he won't have a longer career and he won't uh. be able to make as much money. And he actually Ugh. ransomed Home Alone 2. Hmm. He said, like, you don't get to make Home Alone 2 unless the good son
0: gets made. Ugh. Um, it's just treating him like a weird manager thing. Well,
1: it's 15%. Yeah. It's 50. Like, so even though a lot of it is in a trust, 15% of $55, dollars is still a lot of money. Um, and like the ultimate tragedy is uh, famously, there was a very long and arduous uh, split with uh, yes. with uh, his
0: partner. He was never, with, they were
1: never married. Yeah. They were never married. And uh, the day of the final judgment was supposed to be handed down. uh he just disappeared. He just like walked away because without the money, without like that, like then what was the point? Right. And uh, he's been estranged
0: ever since. After the filming of Richie Rich, his parents split up like you said, and he retired from the uh, industry. And he claimed that it was the best thing that ever happened to him, retiring at the age of, what was it, 10? No, 14. 14. He retired at the age of 14. And he has gone back, and he's done movies. and Party Monster. Party Monster was his big return, I think. Um, among many other... He's literally been a retired person since he was 14. Mm-hmm. So he does whatever. He, he He does weird little projects. Like a retired person, he's just been in his 20s this whole time doing, like, weird, just being in a... He's 38 right now. Now he's 38, but just being in a weird band and, you know, doing this and oh, that. Oh, oh,
1: the, uh, what was it? The, uh, Pizza Underground? Yeah, yeah. In I remember when they, they were doing... they just did song stuff. parodies of Velvet Underground songs, like, Take a Bite on the Wild Side. Yeah. Um, the, uh... I just remember at Le Poussin Rouge, mm. where um, is a venue in New York City. Yeah, cause he uh, the, lives. He's lived yeah, in New York. Like
0: the Neffles did a
1: show there, and I was mm. doing stand up in like the the basement.
0: Bar. Molly Neffle from uh, Page Seven and um, fantastic podcast on the last podcast network.
1: And uh, there was all these weird paintings on the wall, and I was like, it was odd. There was just these grotesque like. Things were like Hulk Hogan was hanging out with Donatello and like Michael Jackson was like body slamming a G.I. Joe. And I was just like looking around. It's like, man, whoever I literally was like on just riffing and just being like, man, whoever painted these is like really stuck in the 90s. <laughs> and like a very polite person, like raised their hand hands like uh, that was Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> he, uh, he painted these with his friends. And That's I was like, amazing. fuck. <laughs> uh, he had a DJ night at that same venue called Macaulay Culkin's iPod mm. where he would show up and play some
0: of his iPod. Uh thank you so much. I think that's about covers it for me. Do you have anything else you want to talk I gushed I think plenty earlier on. I I don't know what else to say. It's kind of, it's an, a fan, fantastic holiday movie. I love it. Um, uh, it's weird
1: how rich the McAllisters are. It's mm-hmm. like upsetting it's weird how rich
0: how the McAllisters are and at the same time I really as a kid like it was the ultimate f- uh, fantasy for mm-hmm. me as a little kid to 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 get to have the place to yourself and eat as much ice cream as you wanted to. And, you know, and at the same time, this kid is doing things that he does the laundry. He gets groceries. He is a capable and he stands up to things that I would be too afraid. I I would also be the ultimate fear. I would also be mortified to be left alone. You know what I mean? And I was a really lonely kid, too. And I felt so much like he felt about his, you know, getting annoyed at his family and and stuff like that. And that was fun, too, to see an honest take about a kid who sometimes don't like their fucking family. You know what I mean? Even though it's like a nice holiday movie, sometimes you just want to get away from all these fucks.
1: It's, it was, it's still, it was like, it's, he's a little sociopath, man. Yeah. It was just like, I think you'll be very sad if you woke up one day and your family wasn't around anymore, and you just, bl- dead-eyed, like, no, I wouldn't.
0: I lo- Mother,
1: I, no, I wouldn't. I love to. If you die tomorrow, mom, I wouldn't feel a goddamn thing.
0: I love the old movie trope. Hi, caramba. <laughs> I love the old movie trope, too, of... Um, wi- you have to wish it away first. Even though like Oh yeah. You know, I was actually like, I was talking to someone about this. <laughs> you always have to be like, no, I hold a McNeely wish that my you know, fiance would away or what you know what I mean? Like uh yeah, he like uh my um my uh I wish editor, my mom was my dad. You know what I mean? My editor in
1: chief at uh College Humor Dorkley, uh, Andrew Bridgman, hilarious guy, you should follow him on Twitter. Um is uh just went on like a mini rant <laughs> when I was talking when I said what the episode uh, topic was this week about how like Kevin wish mur- like, for all intents and purposes, from his own perspective, he wish murdered an entire family and was cool with it. Yeah. He, like, Thanos snapped and evaporated human lives
0: with the power of his mind and did not care. <laughs> and that's fucked. It's pretty amazing all right uh thank you so much for joining us if you'd like to uh support us further with uh on patreon it's patreon.com forward slash we do bonus content every week one of which will be more talk about home alone with home alone 2 and 3 all the sequels and the bad video games um also I'm you just can gonna do my great tim curry impression yeah. the entire time. fantastic you can follow me on, uh twitch twitch.tv for forward slash Ho, Jake? You
1: can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young. And if you, I don't know, feel like you're in the mood to watch an uh, improvised animated series about uh, two cartoonists stuck in hell, uh, check out dropout.tv because uh, the show I'm on, Cartoon Hell, is on there. Very uh, good. So give it a whirl. It's free. You can sign up whenever.
0: Very good. All right. It could eventually cost money, but like, it's free to try. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, please check it out. And uh, always remember, never stop... Bruise it and keep on whizzing. Get ready for a 10-minute solo, Jake. I love it. No one wants to see that. It's weird and boring. Just play the hits. I'm about it. I'm on some of them parties. One guy's about it, but literally all the other people at this festival
1: don't want to hear it. I'm on party drugs and I'm feeling it.